Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right, good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today we're talking about estate planning, but from a different angle and a different perspective. And the reason is that it's so important for you to understand what estate planning is all about. I mean, for real, show of hands, you don't have to say for real today on the show, but have you been concerned about estate planning? Have you heard about it, but you're not really sure what it is or whether it's for you? And maybe you wonder what happens to all of your stuff when you die. Now, no need to share your answers directly, but we do want to take your questions during this episode today. Now, what we want to do is give you a really a sneak peek into this idea of estate planning from a distance. It's kind of like being able to browse shopping, but not have the annoying clerk say, hey, have you found everything? And you're not even sure what you're looking for yet. We're in a place where you can really dip your toe in the water and find out what estate planning is all about and what it does, see how it's relevant to you to think about this long-term planning and find out really what it what it takes to make sure that you are protected. Now, today we're talking with Andy Winehouse, and he's been 30 years in the estate planning field. And I think really the value of having somebody who has done this for so long is that I think we're going to discover today, Andy, you have this unconscious competency in this field. And that means that you know it like the back of your hand, which hopefully will translate into it comes across much more simply than somebody trying to over explain something and make it really complicated. So we hope to do all that for you today. Now, Bruce, good morning and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us for the conversation today. Yeah, Rachel, the um, unconsciously competent, you know, that's one of, that's one of our goals, uh, not only for ourselves, but people that we network with. And I've probably, Andy can confirm this, I, we've probably been in I don't know, anywhere between 60 and 80 estate planning meetings together. So we At know least, each other Bruce. very, very well. I know what's important in, in Andy's mind that allows me to bring clients to him and feel very, very comfortable. The great thing about <clears throat> uh, uh, attorneys is that they're very, they understand the law. They understand the, uh, what you need to do to protect you and your family, your estate. However, not all of them know how to communicate this. Um, uh, I've been around uh, a bunch of them in my career, and, and I always gravitate towards Andy because Andy's style of communication is, is uh, beneficial to most people, and I really appreciate him. He's very competent, and yet he, it doesn't make any difference how competent you are if you can't get your communication across. <laughs> it, it, it does no good. So you're going to see that in the podcast because – uh, Andy is a wealth of knowledge. What I'd like to say from, to our listeners is don't tune out because you think, oh, I don't need any state planning because I don't really have much. That's the kind of thing I hear all the time. And, and and really, you don't have to have much to really benefit from estate planning. And Andy, will, I'm sure, will uh, touch on that uh, subject. So everybody pay attention and uh, give us your questions, and, and you're going to have a great time in this podcast. All right. So... Andy, without further ado, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. That's a big buildup from Bruce. I'll try to live up to it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're really excited for the conversation today. And I think, Bruce, you touched on one side of somebody saying, hey, I don't have enough money for an estate plan. Maybe there's another side that maybe you say, I've already got my estate plan. Let's tune out of the conversation because I don't need to hear any more. And I have a feeling you're probably going to learn something new that didn't already you weren't already acting upon that is going to provide additional clarity for you. So wherever you stand on that spectrum, if you already have an estate plan in place uh, from maybe 20 years ago and you're thinking, does that really still relate to what my wishes are today? I'm sure you're going to find some amazing nuggets in this conversation. And if you have been thinking, I don't need to think about estate planning. I'm young. I don't even have kids yet, or I don't have a family we really want to encourage you to still dig in and listen. This conversation, I want to hope that it will vacuum out the ambiguity from your mind in terms of estate planning. So um, Andy, before we completely jump in, I want to say a few things about what you have done. Um, so you are the managing member of the law office of Andrew Winehouse LLC. You are a Clayton, Missouri-based practice. Now that means that you have, you're a member of the Missouri Bar Association. Um, you're also adjunct faculty for Washington University's graduate tax law program, which I think that's really interesting that you are connecting the tax law with the estate planning. And so that is an area of expertise that we can share and glean from today. You graduated from Washington University. And there was something else that I wanted to mention as well. You have um, you were the author of a text in 1995 called Generation Skipping and Life Insurance, originally published by General American Life Insurance Company, and you had some background in the life insurance industry. So just, I think, a really well-rounded background. But now, outside of what I've shared, would you share with our listeners how you came into this field and kind of your backstory? Sure, Rachel. So it's not always, you know, that life um, turns out as was planned. I was a young 25-year-old attorney um, in 1990 and with the very first law firm that I worked for, still in business and still in Clayton, Missouri, I was going to go into real estate and um, help with, in a sense, the legal end of building shopping centers and office buildings and all that. And when I graduated in 1990, um, there was a minor recession going on. This was during President Bush 1's um, administration. There was a recession going on. And lo and behold, when I walked into the law firm, um, the associate that had been doing trust and estate planning left for another law firm. And they looked at my, um, my list of classes from law school and seeing I had a lot of tax classes and also had a trust and estates class. And I was told, we don't have much real estate work going on. You're going to be our new trust and estates associate. And that's literally how I got into the practice. And um, lo and behold, I did actually like it. When you end up being a trust and estates attorney, you end up seeing pretty much everything. Um, if you're drafting their trust, or unfortunately when people pass away, they own real estate, they own businesses or corporations, and you're gonna be involved in a sense with those aspects of the law as well. So um, I can't say that I've ever regretted it. And once I um, started with it, I kind of stuck with it. Um, as you indicated, an opportunity came along for me to work for what was General American Life Insurance Company, which was, back in the day, a Fortune 400 company and Missouri's largest mutual insurer, they got bought out by um, MetLife back mm. in 2000. And after that, um, I went back into private practice in 2004 and have been working just in this area for the last 16 years. Oh, that's excellent. Well, it sounds like, so your background in estate planning overall was about 30. Is that right? 30 years? Yeah, yeah. started in 1990 with the first firm I was with. That's excellent. And so I love that you have that 
history with the tax, the real estate side. So you're thinking of these cash flowing assets as well that many people are acquiring and how does that transition and how is that related to my trust and my will? And so we're going to dig into hopefully all of this today uh, without being uh, covering too much ground. So hopefully we will have time for all of that. What have you found in the work that you're doing as an estate planning attorney specifically? What have you found most rewarding about that? Oh, um, unlike, I'll put it this way, unlike some lawyers where the nature of their practices is adversarial, let's say a trial lawyer, a litigator, where they're involved in adversarial pursuits for their clients, mine is more... um, I think where I can really show that I'm adding value in a sense to their life, not just now, but ongoing and in the future. Um, I become hopefully, you know, a trusted advisor that they're comfortable with. And what I'm dealing with is normally important to them. Um, If they, even if, as Bruce was indicating, they didn't realize that they needed it or they didn't think that it was something that was necessary. My finding is, anybody probably is in need of some of these documents. Anybody might end up in the hospital and might need a medical directive. Anybody that has assets probably wants to have some kind of estate plan, even if they don't have a spouse or children or grandchildren, whatever it might be. So I find it very rewarding. I become almost in a sense, hopefully along with Bruce and maybe their accountant, a trusted advisor that they'll turn to, you know, ongoing in the future. Mm, That's excellent. And I think building that relationship where you know you're investing in someone's life and you're improving it and making it better, I think is super rewarding. And I think part of the reason why we want to even bring a show like this onto the Money Advantage podcast is because I think so many people don't realize their need for something until they're made aware of that need. And I feel like sometimes that can be an uncomfortable conversation. I mean, we don't want to think about mortality. We don't want to think about something bad potentially happening. And yet here I am raising my hand saying that something bad almost did happen to me a year ago after delivering my daughter. And looking at the fact that we have an estate plan and we have the life insurance in place is tremendously peace filling. It's this life giving thing for me that I have so much peace of mind of knowing that if something were to happen, because none of our lives are guaranteed that I mean, our life is guaranteed right now, but death is also guaranteed and we don't know when that's going to happen. And just being prepared and having that long range planning already in place just tremendously uh, removes that question of what's going to happen. So let's talk about the basics of estate planning. And from your perspective, what would you say is the idea of estate planning just kind of as a conceptual, uh, what is it and why would somebody need that? Right. And, and that's a great question. And Bruce does a great job of going through this with his clients. It breaks down in my mind, just the way I think about it, Rachel, into two categories. What happens if something happens to me, but I don't die, but I just can't make decisions anymore. I can't do things for myself, whether it's because of age, I'm in my 80s or 90s, and I just, something's happened to me in terms of mental capacity or something's happened to me earlier, a sudden event like you almost experienced when you were having your daughter, what Mm -hmm. happens to me and what can I do to plan for it if I just can't make decisions anymore? And then part two, unfortunately it is, you know, when we're born, ultimately we are gonna die at some point. What happens when I pass away? How do I want my assets distributed? What types of decision makers are gonna be in place to help with those decisions on my assets. So I, I kind of categorize it into kind of yeah, two tunnels. The what if mm-hmm. I'm here, but I can't do anything anymore. 
who's going to make these decisions in my place and what happens when I'm gone? And I think those are really important questions. And Bruce, I love that you bring that to the table in conversations even before somebody is talking with an estate planning attorney, because I think those are just questions that as we sit with that and realize, okay, if I am in one of these situations, do I want my life's work to just shrivel up or evaporate? Or do I want it to benefit people after me? What do I want to happen to the real estate portfolio I've built or the business that I've spent my life cultivating and developing this goodwill and these, this reputation of my business and this name of the business? What do I want to happen to that? What do I want to happen to my house that I live in? So let's go ahead and then kind of talk, what are the elements of a estate plan again, high level perspective, and then we can kind of drill down into each one, but what would an estate plan include? Right. So going with my kind of original kind of precept that you want to look at what happens if I just can't make decisions anymore, but I'm still here, those at least tend to lend themselves to powers of attorney. I'm here, Mm -hmm. I haven't died, and I want somebody else to make decisions. And at least in Missouri and also in Illinois, um, where I live, they break down into two parts financial powers of attorney for financial decisions where somebody else is going to do things for you if you can no longer do them for yourselves and healthcare decisions. Who is making decisions for me at the hospital if I can't make them for myself? And also to the extent that your state allows it, if I am in, I'm just gonna call it a persistent vegetative state where I'm not coming out of it, it's clear they're not coming out of it. What were my wishes? What is my direction? as far as I'm going to be just this blunt, the dying process, what Mm -hmm. does that look like? And then on the other side, when I've passed away, what kind of documents should control my assets? In my state in Missouri and in most others, I tend to prefer a trust, a revocable, changeable trust that you can change as often as you want. And also as, um, in a sense, a accessory to that, we normally do a last will and testament where Um, certainly certain wishes are laid out, especially if you have minor children for guardians in most states, certainly in Missouri and Illinois, um, that's where we name our guardians. Those are four key documents, the medical directive, the financial power of attorney, what we call a pour over will and the trust. Those are kind of the basic elements in a sense to putting together a state plan. And which is often where Bruce gets involved, once those documents are in place, making sure that assets are titled or beneficiary correctly to work well operationally with those documents. Andy, that's one of the things I wanted to to emphasize is that, and for listeners, you you may already have a trust and you think, oh, I'm all set up, but have you actually titled your assets to the trust? Because wouldn't you say that's one of the most common the common errors that happens all the time. Absolutely, Bruce. Explain that legally. Sure. So, and with a revocable trust, which is put in place in part, in part to eliminate the need for probate court administration, um, at least in Missouri, Illinois, and almost every other state in the county where you reside, there's going to be probate court administration if assets, in a sense, don't have I'm going to put this way, any type of titling to them, um, or for some reason, the person actually named the estate, which is unusual, but possible. But in most instances, probate court elimination is part of the estate planning process. 
most of my clients don't want probate, the probate court where they reside to be involved with the disposition of their assets when they pass. And more times than not, if Bruce and I are in a sense reviewing an existing estate plan where maybe I didn't draft it and the attorney that did draft the estate plan did a very fine job, an excellent job in drafting it, but they never retitled their assets or at least there's some assets that didn't get retitled to work in sync with the trust that they had that's a recipe for disaster if they pass away and don't rectify that particular construct that the assets don't sync up with the trust that they put in place. So let's back up just for a second. So what exactly happens with probate? You mentioned that there's probate and many people say, well, that's a word that I don't like, but what exactly is that besides the fact that it is the government's plan for you or your state's estate plan for you if you don't have one, but how does it um, eat away your assets and cause additional taxation and the length of time that it takes to go through that? Can you explain that process? Great question. So if someone dies with absolutely no estate plan, Rachel, at least in Missouri where I'm licensed and we have other licensed and the other um, attorneys in the firm that are licensed in Illinois, at least in the two states where we practice the most, If you die without any type of a written estate plan, your estate plan is set by your state statutes. So we call the laws of descent and distribution or euphemistically known as intestacy laws. And they're gonna distribute your assets as the legislature has set. And that very well may not be what you desired. For example, if someone passes away with a second spouse from a second marriage, but children from a first marriage, highly unlikely under the state's intestacy laws that the assets are gonna be distributed the way that person that passed away really wanted them, which might've been in trust for a spouse, the second spouse until they pass away and then ultimately to my children. I'm just doing this as an example. Mm -hmm. It's probably not gonna pass that way. In addition, probate is by probate court in almost every county in which the person resides. It's a public process where they're going to know, in a sense, the public is going to know, and most people I know you're going to be gone, but most people don't want everybody knowing their business, so to speak, and how assets are being distributed, who's getting them by distribution, and what they had. Because with probate, an inventory based upon the fair market value of the deceased party's assets must be submitted to the court. So everybody's going to know what you were worth and what you had. And then worst of all, in most states like mine in Missouri, by statute, an attorney has to be appointed for the estate. By statute, at least in Missouri, I'm allowed to charge a certain fee. It's set by the legislature. And those fees are going to be paid. You know, the court will make sure of that to the attorney that's doing, in a sense, a lot of work on behalf of the estate. All of that might have been eliminated if they had gone with a revocable trust and that trust had been funded, is the word properly, with assets flowing to it. Those are what we call non-probate transfers, and the probate court isn't involved with those transfers at all. Andy, talk about the cost of uh, the probate process um, and the timeline, and also that um, some people say, well, you know, I I really don't mind probate either because it's going to go the way I want, but, you know, it can be contested, right? So then that's also a stress on the family. Right. So again, Bruce is so good. With no 
written document in place, what parties are receiving might be contested. If you have a trust, at least in Missouri, you can have a no contest clause that if drafted properly will be in a sense upheld by the court and anybody that contests in a sense the distribution they're receiving may very well lose that distribution in total if that's what's written in the document but if you're passing assets by intestacy it's possible it could be contested in missouri for example and bruce is right our statute wants to make sure that attorneys are compensated for their time serving for an estate ours is based upon the size of the asset base and um, it, it goes, in a sense, up as the assets go up. It might be, and I think this is the case, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but on the first 5,000 of assets, it's 5%. On the next 20,000 20, of estate assets, it's 4%. Mm -hmm. On the next 75,000 of assets, it's 3% and so on. And I believe ours caps out at over a million dollars, which is not hard to get to mm -hmm. if the person owned life insurance that had no beneficiary or something of that nature or a brokerage account that had no beneficiary. We're still allowed to charge, I believe it's 2% on anything over a million dollars. So it's just kind of a broad range. I normally tell people between 2% and 5% of their assets would be going to the attorney if there is probate court administration. That's our statute. Okay. So then you can look at the cost benefit analysis. I mean, you could say, okay, here's the cost to put an estate plan in place in the first place, or, and that's going to be a fixed known cost today, or I have up to whatever percentage of my estate, however large that may be, that's going to go to some unknown attorney that maybe wasn't my trusted advisor. So exactly. And to Bruce's point, the time element probate court in normal times, never mind a pandemic as we're having this particular discussion, probate court takes a bit of time also because creditors of the deceased are allowed through the estate to make claims and they have a set time period normally in each state to file those claims. In Missouri on average, I would say a probate estate that's even moving rapidly, it's going to take seven to nine months, if not longer, to, in a sense, make its way through and reach determination, final determination. Wow. In a pandemic, That's... they're doing, and the probate court's doing their very best, at least where I sit in St. Louis County, they do have protocols in place to try to, um, you know, mitigate the virus. We did have a stay at home earlier in March and April and early May in St. Louis County. And the probate court process is taking a bit longer right now just because there's not as many personnel, in a sense, in the building on staff, so to speak. They're, they're taking shifts and all the rest. So it's taking, and they're doing their very best, but they're, they're, you know, it's taking longer even than the norm, say, that we would have had in 2019. So, hey, Rachel, ahead, real, real quick, before we go on, you said something about cost analysis. And this is the, one of the things that I, I talk about generational planning is sometimes um, I talk to my clients and they say, oh, you know, and I say, do your mother and father, do they have their estate plan in place? Because they're the ones that are going to have to deal with it, mm -hmm. the children. And yes. they say no. And I said, well, you consider and they would say, well, my, my mom and dad, they don't, they don't want to pay for that kind of stuff. And I, and I said, well, why not? They said, well, they say, well, we're gone. We don't have to deal with it. <laughs> and it's kind I of a even... weird thing. And I said, well, then why don't you pay for it? Right. You know, so we had, we've had several wise. cases 
where you know an estate plan, relatively speaking, you can get it for t between twenty five hundred and four thousand uh, dollars. A basic good estate plan. Mm -hmm. So then, when you start to consider what Andy was just saying, where you know the cost for the attorney could be, you know, twenty thousand uh, dollars from a million dollars or even more. Spending twenty five hundred dollars as the children, and some, and a lot of times they'll even split the cost from multiple children. It's relatively, uh, it's really cost effective. So that's another thing for our listeners to, to say: Hey, not only do I need to get my estate plan, but if you expect to make it easy, get your siblings together and say, "Hey, let's approach mom and dad, and let's talk to them and say we will pay for this." And it's the also gears are turning that, for sure right now. I mean, right. I'm sure that not only me, right. but there are so many people I know that would benefit from this exact thing. Yeah, it's and it's it's a thing that uh, it also brings the family together to start talking about finances, and that's one of the things that doesn't happen. So now Absolutely. all of a sudden you have this meteor that hits, you know these these three children of somebody, and they get the estate uh, money, and now they have to divide it, and they have to figure out what's going on, and then there's infighting, and and I love a comment that Andy often says in meetings is, you know, parents will say, well, you know, my kids get along really, really well. It's never going to be a problem. And Andy says, well, that's true. And you might even like your son-in-laws and daughters-in-law, but in this time period, in-laws become outlaws. And it's, and it's a time period when, you know, it's saying, why are you letting your brother do that? Why are you letting your sister do that? And it's good people, but they're just trying to protect their own spouse. And they don't even understand the dynamics of the family. So, Andy, would you what would you like to comment on all that? Yeah, you know, it, 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 he's right. We we have two sayings here in Missouri. You never know an in law might become an outlaw. And then also, um, even for your own siblings, you never know someone until you share an inheritance with them. Those are just kind mm -hmm. of two axioms we have. So, um, I I really do believe that spelling it out, taking the time to spell out what you desire to happen when you pass is worth the effort. I really do. And to, to Bruce's point, it tends to be cost effective. It would be highly unlikely that the cost of the estate plan from an attorney would outweigh the probate fees, um, no matter what state they're in a sense undertaking to do this. And also, um, I've had any number of clients where even if um, probate went well. They weren't normally my clients. I'm inheriting them from someone else. You know, maybe the other attorneys passed away or just no longer practicing. And they're like, you know, Andy, the thing I liked worst about, the thing I disliked most about this, the thing that was worst was because it was a probate process, everybody knew what I got. I actually had business associates that I guess looked at the inventory oh. and saw, you know, I got this tract of land, um, but my brother got tracked why, you know, whatever it was, if we owned a family farm, something like that. The publicity of, in a sense, the probate process isn't something they enjoy either, even if, and this is rare, the assets in a sense passed as desired and they could live with the costs. And that's not normally the case, but the, the publicity of it is normally something that most of the next generation, to Bruce's point, wants to avoid. Oh, sure. And I can imagine just how much um, that publicity could bring on if you just got an inheritance of a million dollars and that's public information. I mean, that's going to be something that you may have people reaching out to you who are suddenly super friendly for uh, non-good reasons because they realize what you have. And uh, just super, super interesting part of the conversation. Can you, 
Um, go back to the piece about creditors real quick. So, and then also um, spelling out your wishes. So the idea that in an estate plan, if you said, okay, I have three chil- four children and I want 25%, 25%, 25%, 25%, if I said that the right number of times, um, to each of my children, I want my whole estate to be liquidated and for everything to go to my kids. Or maybe they're saying, I have all of these real estate properties and I have my own farm and now I want to give the farm to this child and I want the real estate properties to pass to these other three because they're in real estate investing and and they're going to know what to do with it. And then I want my life insurance proceeds to divide equally. So things like that, um, if you don't have an estate plan in place or you don't have your wishes listed out at all, then everyone has to figure out for themselves. And you're saying the creditors come in first before the inheritors. Is that correct? That's correct. If there is a probate estate, and let's say even worse, the person died intestate, they had no written written document, no last will and testament, no trust, no nothing. With what you just spelled out, Rachel, that's probably not going to occur. You're not going to be able to send, for example, the life insurance proceeds to one child, but the business goes to another child and we're going to split the farm equally and all of these types of things that you can do through a written estate plan like a revocable trust. That's not going to happen. And yes, at least, for example, in Missouri, creditors have a defined time period with the probate estate to file claims. And what I find is, um, for example, even if the family, if there had been a trust, was going to pay off a credit card company if the deceased had debt, they're going to file and there's going to be a claim. And again, that's public knowledge if it's going through the probate estate. And again, more cost, more delay, more hassle factor, I'll put it that way, even if that creditor claim, let's say a relatively small credit card bill, was going to be paid off. They all file. Um, you know, if the person at the end of life had to go to a hospital and there were outstanding ambulance fees or fees from medical providers, they're going to file claims if there is a probate estate, even if those were going to be paid by the family in a sense anyway. So mm. I'm, you know, a relatively big fan of at least in Missouri, of revocable trust as, I'll put this way, a will or probate substitute. I love that you're sharing that. And I think that's just getting so, so many questions. I mean, if you had real estate properties and they were all financed, you don't own them outright, then you have a mortgage that's due on that property. So let's just go down that track for a second. What does that look like if you own properties? And that's a- And that's a great question. And that's where a guy like Bruce comes into play. Normally in the tiny, tiny fine print of a mortgage, if the party that undertook the mortgage died, there may be a way for the lender to actually accelerate the note, even if the property has more than enough equity to cover the note, which puts the family under strain. You know, am I going to sell this property in a fire sale? That's where having something liquid like life insurance comes into play to eliminate the note if the family decides, hey, no, this is this is the family farm, so to speak. This is the family business. We are going to hold on to this for the next generation. We need a way now to make this lender go away. Life insurance is often the asset that does that because it normally, normally at least, pays that death benefit. Bruce, I'm going to say these days, within six weeks at most oh, of yes. the yeah, yeah, easily easily within that time period hey andy and also i think one of the things i find is that it also gives some liquid it's hard to it's hard to divide the family farm a lot of times or or big pieces of real estate 
And so it gives some liquidity so that they say, okay, um, I am going to go ahead and buy you out with the life insurance proceeds because one person might not even want 50% of the farm. And the other person says, I want 50% of the, I want 100% of the farm. Well, how are we going to make this fair? He's, he's right. That's why I love working with him, Rachel. That would be very common in a draft at a state plan, like a trust, that, for example, if one child is, I'm going to put it this way, working the farm and the other three are not, I would normally give that one child for a reasonable period of time, let's say one year after the date of death of his, his or her surviving parent, the right to buy the farm at fair market value. They would get it appraised and they would go out and buy their siblings out mm-hmm. and the life insurance might be there to assist them with the buyout of their siblings. So they are getting fair market value. They're being treated equally, but the child that was in a sense, quote unquote, working the farm and wants to end up with the property does, and he or she can feel that honestly, they honored their parents' wishes and they treated them very fairly and equally based upon the value of the farm. That's not uncommon. That's so valuable to think about because I think most of our listeners and clients have not only a home that they own, but they have real estate properties or they're working towards becoming a real estate investor. And most of them probably have children as well. And then you're thinking about if I also have a business where life insurance can be that buy-sell agreement for the person who's working the business, you're saying it can work the same way in real estate also for the, the working property or for real estate investments. So let's, um, let's go back as well. One other thing that you had mentioned about how many people go through probate. I don't know if there's any kind of uh, data on this and maybe there's not, but what would you say about how many people, is there a percentage of people who end up in probate versus who have an estate plan? Yeah. I mean, I would say at least where I reside in Missouri, it's unfortunately still a fairly large amount. I don't know that I can give a percentage. I haven't looked at the data recently, but it's amazing to me how many people do die in test state. That means without even a last will and testament or any other form of um, estate plan, it's still a fairly significant amount, which is why all of, at least in Missouri, our county probate courts are so busy. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's just There's a lot of folks that just don't take the time. And it's the ones that always, in a sense, reach the public spotlight that highlight it. Um, For example, I know you're originally from Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Prince's case, the rock star Prince will go on forever. And, you know, unlike, you know, his rival, Michael Jackson, who had an estate plan and everything's going as Michael Jackson so desired, Prince had nothing and he did have loved ones. It wasn't like he didn't die without... Um, I believe siblings and some step siblings, um, they will be, in a sense, involved with probate matters for a good long time. Mm. The more recent ones, I believe Aretha Franklin, unfortunately, died without anything in place, even though she had, I believe it's four children. I know she has children. Mm. It's always the ones that um, reach the public eye. And another one was James Gandolfini from The Sopranos um, with a lot of assets, where also, unfortunately, Um, probably tax matters could have been handled better had he had something in place. And in my recollection, um, Tony Soprano did not have anything in place when he passed. You know, it's just, it's interesting. I think it highlights the fact that just because you have built a lot in your life doesn't mean you automatically do this planning and vice versa. A lot of people should do the planning who maybe haven't yet built out all the things that they will build during their lifetime. 
can you, you keep mentioning um, intestate and didn't have at least a last will and testament. So I'd like to ask you just publicly so that everyone can hear this. What is the value of making sure you go through the full estate planning process versus just writing down a will? Okay. So a last will and testament normally does require probate court administration. So you are going to get those probate fees and creditor claims period and all the rest. But at least with a will, if for some reason that's the way that the person wants to proceed instead of putting a revocable trust in place, the will does spell out exactly what is supposed to happen to assets at your passing. At least it will pass as desired. It's just the probate court is gonna be involved normally with any assets passing pursuant to that last will and testament. But okay. better, at least from my perspective, Rachel, than just going intestate and having nothing at all where the state legislature is determining who's receiving what. Gotcha, okay. Perfect. Now I, I'm looking at the time. We have about 18 minutes left. Um, there's so much more that we could cover, but what I would like to have you kind of dig down into, you mentioned the power of attorney, you mentioned healthcare, you mentioned guardianship, you mentioned having a trustee, the, the revocable living trust as well. And I'm getting a little bit of background noise. Is that on one of you guys' end? Oh, okay. All right. We'll just, we'll roll with it. They're, they're uh, vacuuming in my office right now. <laughs> okay. That's a, it sounded like a vacuum cleaner. I wasn't sure. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll just roll with it. So can you just kind of break down what are those elements and what do they do? Right. And that's a great question. So this is what we call the fiduciary choices, Rachel. And that's a fancy word for who is doing things for you. Number one, if you are incapacitated under a power of attorney, we call that person an attorney in fact. And you're going to give them the power normally if, at least for example, with my documents, if two licensed medical professionals have determined that you can no longer handle, for example, financial matters yourself, two doctor's letters, I'll put it that way, two physician's letters are, are obtained, somebody's going to be doing things for you. And it could be as simple as bill paying or watch this, and this does happen, um, you need to go into a long-term care facility. They want somebody to sign a contract. If you can't sign, somebody better be able to sign so you can get those services that apparently you need from that long-term care facility. Um, the place we really see it on a financial end is with something like a retirement plan, like a 401k or an IRA. The I and IRA is individual retirement account. IRAs have to be owned by people, even if they're beneficiaried to trusts. If you're incapacitated and something's going on in the markets, for example, Bruce can only do something if he sees one of two documents, that power of attorney showing that somebody else can make decisions and can undertake whatever advice Bruce is giving to them, or he's gonna need a court order if something called a conservatorship is needed for you because you didn't have a power of attorney. And conservatorships can take a good long time to get, especially right now, as I indicated, where in a lot of states, the courts are operating in a sense, in a different manner than they normally would, and not all the staff is present, and they're not having as many hearings as they otherwise would. That could take a long time, and normally long delays if something's going on in the equity markets is not a good result. And Andy, just to clarify, uh, the power of attorney in most states would have to be a financial power of attorney not just a general power of attorney. Right. In most states at this point, Bruce, certainly in Missouri and also in Illinois, 
the medical decisions and the financial decisions are bifurcated and it doesn't even need to it doesn't even need to be the same people making those decisions you could choose different people for different documents and that would absolutely be the case in missouri the financial power of attorney for example we have certain powers that are enumerated in our statutes but certain powers if you want to give them have to specifically be added to the power of attorney and i'll give one that we often think about in missouri at least if you want the attorney in fact while you're incapacitated to be able to modify your trust because let's say something's happened tax-wise with tax laws or something's happened with one of your children where you know that this person will make the right decision you have to enumerate that power in the power of attorney. It's not just set forth in the Missouri statutes. But for example, if it was a second wife and children from a first marriage and your second wife was gonna be your attorney, in fact, under the power of attorney, you might not give that power to change your trust because you're worried, I hate to admit it, that they would do something that mm. wouldn't be for your benefit, but is for that second wife's benefit to the detriment of the children from the first marriage. So these are the kind of scenarios we play out when we're drafting those, in a sense, incapacity documents. Mm. The same on the healthcare side with the medical directive, you better spell out who is making decisions. Is it gonna be more than one person? Are they on the same page of the playbook as far as what you want to happen at end of life if that comes up? Or even if it's not end of life, if there's a risk profile to something that the physicians are recommending, a surgery, whatever it might be, hopefully your attorneys, in fact, are, I'll put it this way, on the same page of the playbook so that the decisions made are the ones that you would have wanted if you were making them yourself. And I think what's really interesting about that is that you would assume that I'm married to this person, they automatically are my healthcare power of attorney and they can speak for me in the doctor's office, but that's not the case. And no. so the, can you speak to that real quick? Yeah, Rachel, the physicians these days want to see a medical directive. I remember, it's funny when all of my children were being born, I made sure my wife had one. That was the first thing they asked when we were, when we were checking in for delivery is, yes. do you have a medical directive? And mm -hmm. my wife, of course, even though she had packed her little bag, had forgotten it and I had to run home and go get it, but you know, we had it. And um, that is probably, certainly if you're coming in for elective surgery, that's one of the first things they ask you. And if it's non-elective, have it easily accessible. I often mm -hmm. tell my clients to make sure, Bruce has seen this, that their own physician, if they have a primary care physician, does have an electronic copy at least of that document. Andy, talk a little bit, talk a little bit about um, the fact that uh, going from a revocable trust to an irrevocable trust is sometimes what, um, what I would call second marriage would like and yes. tell people why they would consider that. Right. So what we often see, and this is a, a segment of estate planning, Rachel, is if somebody with a significant amount of assets is entering into a second marriage, they're going to want to make sure that children from a first marriage are protected. Mm -hmm. And that can take a number of different, in a sense, um, it can take a number of different forms. It might be a prenuptial agreement, but a lot of times they don't want to do that for various reasons. They don't want to ask their soon-to-be new spouse for a prenuptial agreement. One thing that you can do in many states, at least Missouri is one of them, is you could set up an irrevocable trust with an I, 
where someone other than you, the party getting married, is going to be trustee, a sibling, an adult child, something of that nature, and you do transfer assets to that irrevocable trust for the benefit of, let's say, first family, knowing that spouse is not going to benefit from those assets, but you have other assets, including perhaps, again, life insurance, that if the person died is going to benefit that surviving spouse. And that's a way to, I'll put it this way, um, work around with estate planning, having to do a prenup, because a, a lot of folks just don't want to engage in that process. They don't feel comfortable asking their soon-to-be, you know, their mm -hmm. fiance, their soon-to-be wife or husband, hey, I really want to put a prenup in place. You know, can we do this? It's, not, it's a way to work around it. Well, I think one of the most interesting things about estate planning in general to me is it requires somebody to be willing to have very uncomfortable conversations and think about uncomfortable things in order to work through creating a plan that will make things better if those uncomfortable realities come to happen in their life. Right. I mean, I yeah, think that's I'm, the best way I can say that. Rachel, I'm laughing about this because um, I don't know if Andy remembers this and, and you know, he's has, we're, we're going to ask him for stories here, but, I remember on two occasions during this process, one of the spouses asking, well, what happens if we get divorced? And, you know, that's a, that's a weird thing to be sitting in a room with a closed door with your financial advisor and the estate attorney and one spouse ask what happens if we get a divorce? Because you're, you're thinking, ooh, I wonder if he or she's been thinking about that. Yeah. So, Andy, have, you have other kind of examples oh, of that? I, you know, Bruce and with, you know, a number of folks, I just have plenty of, of war stories. I mean, some of it is just um, outrageous. We, we get all sorts of crazy requests. The things you hear about are true, you know, without I, I, attorney-client privilege, I can't give names, but people that want to be buried in their sports cars, um, I'm not making this up. They want to actually be buried. At, that means something to them. They want to be buried in their sports car and their husband or wife is looking at them like, you got to be crazy, you know, but things like that. Um, all sorts of things, you know, that do get covered, um, you know, I'll put it this way, assets that the children never knew about that they had that come out only when they pass away. Mm. I never knew that mom, or, and sometimes it's a good thing. I never knew that mom or dad was able to scrimp and save and put this kind of life insurance policy in place because it can be, I want to put it this way, a game changer for them. You know, mm. oftentimes these days, um, clients, if they live out to life expectancy, they're in their 80s or maybe even their 90s, and the children might be at a point where they're retiring or at least they have college-age kids and they didn't know how they were going to do it. And that life insurance policy coming from a parent or a grandparent can be a game changer financially mm -hmm. in terms of how their lives turn out. So plenty of stories. Andy, uh, I, think, I, I think this next topic is going to be way too much for this podcast, but maybe we can touch on it. You know, you talked about transferring the assets to an irrevocable trust. And one of the greatest advantages of that is for uh, protecting, protecting the estate from um, Medicaid um, nursing home situation. Right, so can you is, just touch on that just a and bit? That is, and, that, and that would be, you're right. That's, that's a, a, a podcast by itself, but many, many clients don't want their entire, in a sense, nest egg to be depleted by the cost of long-term care. And if they haven't put a long-term care 
policy in place or don't have a life insurance policy with what we call a long-term care rider on it, they are facing that. So they need to undertake, in a sense, what we call long-term care planning or elder care planning early in the process. For example, for most folks, Medicaid looks back 60 months, five years, it's been this way since the days of Bill Clinton, to, I'm going to put it this way, take assets that they feel should be used for the cost of the care if you haven't transferred them out. So if you can think about that, five years before you're even thinking about needing to go into a care facility, you need to move assets in a sense out of your name and retitle them to something like an irrevocable trust with an I, where somebody other than you is going to be the trustee and you're probably not technically going to be a beneficiary of that trust. You're willing to wall those assets off so that they're there in a sense, even if everything you are keeping in your own name is utilized for what we call the spend down for Medicaid purposes. Right. And that does get super complicated. And I don't want to spend too much time because I want to ask you about um, minor children as well, which is something super near and dear to my heart. But so the whole idea with Medicaid spend down, if you don't want all of your assets to be used up in the long-term care process, you may qualify for Medicaid, which is a state and federal situation, but you have to have a certain very low asset amount that's in your own personal name and super low income. And if you have more than that, it's going to be used up towards the the long-term care facility. Is that correct? Exactly right. Exactly right. And yet, and to your point, even if somebody didn't have a dollar to their name, which is unusual, if you have children that are minors, whatever your minor age is in whatever state, in Missouri, it's 18, you really should have a last will and testament where you and or your spouse, if you're married or if you're a single parent, you can do this as well, name a guardian, a mm-hmm. caregiver, and the, in a sense, the legal party that is responsible for your minor children till they hit the age, at least in Missouri, of 18. When you're 18, you can vote, you can serve in the armed forces, you no longer lean a guardian, but before that, you do need a legal guardian, in a sense, to be in place and be the party that provides for them, provides that care, all the rest. And that should be set forth, at least in Missouri, that's set forth in a last will and testament. And that was the point that I wanted to bring up as well. So for me, thinking I'm a young parent, I have a one-year-old now and an eight-year-old. They're both clearly minors. If something were to happen to me, well, my husband would just take care of the kids. Life insurance would be a huge piece of allowing him the ability and freedom to do that. However, what if something happened to both of us? then that is the question that in my mind, and again, I'm not trying to say we should all think about the most negative things that could possibly happen. However, being prepared with a plan that works if those negative events happen really just gives tremendous peace of mind that you're missing out on if you don't think about those uncomfortable realities that could happen. But when you think about, okay, what do I want? Who do I want to take care of my kids? How do I want my financial resources to allow them to maintain the life that they know with the least disruption? How do I think about that? Then you would have the guardian, you have trustees, you can write and spell out what kind of wishes you have in terms of who would take care of them, who would be the backup person that would take care of them if the first person isn't available. And so thinking through your what's going to happen to your kids is a life insurance and estate planning consideration. And that's why I love working with Bruce. You want to be working with a team. You want a financial advisor, an attorney, and maybe even an account if there's enough assets at stake. That's a great point. For example, if something happened to you and you've named a party, a sibling or somebody to be a guardian, what if their financial circumstances aren't such that it would be easy? What if, for example, you've got 
two kids like you, Rachel, and they would need to build an addition onto their home so that there's a place for them in a sense to live and live comfortably. How is that going to be financially provided for? And that's where somebody like Bruce gets involved. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I love just thinking through those pieces. And again, I think super uncomfortable questions. I think usually when you start talking about any of these things, there's something that somebody doesn't really want to touch with a 10 foot pole. I mean, we want to stay a hundred and 80 degrees away from that as much as we can. But at the same time, I think just the exposure and talking about these things and making them a little bit more uh, normal to talk about, I think is really important for somebody to be able to lean in, do that planning and feel very comfortable that whatever they put in place is really going to help and serve their family no matter when they pass. So Ken, how can our listeners connect with you? Oh, um, any number of, of ways. Um, my practice is pretty much limited to Missouri and mm. Illinois. Um, but you know, we're, we're on, you know, you can find us on the internet and all the rest phone number and all the rest is, is out there. Um, so easy, easy enough to, in a sense, find me if there is, you know, somebody here in Missouri, Illinois, that wants to at least have a discussion about this. Yeah, and obviously if they get a hold of, of us, Rachel, through the money advantage, I, I can put them in touch with Ann, Andy also. So Absolutely. And um, just if they are looking you up, Winehouse is W-E-I-N-H-A-U-S. Am I saying correct. your last name correctly? That's correct. Perfect. I spelled and said it correctly. All right. Well, Andy, is there anything else you want to share that maybe we didn't bring up in closing today? You know, I would just say again, it's worth undertaking, Rachel, the investment of time to put an estate plan in place and make sure that your financial plan with somebody like Bruce is also in place. It's it's going to end up, as with most things in life, that doing the planning is better than not doing the planning and just hoping that things turn out all right if something were to happen to you. So that's just kind of a guiding principle that I, you know, I, I kind of just tell people it's the way to go. That's perfect. Actually, I'll add one more thing onto that. If you're waiting to have everything perfect before you make the plan, you will not put a plan in place. That's correct. Work with what you have right now and know that 10 years from now or even two years from now, your assets may change, your income may change, your family may change, all the dynamics can change, and you can update and improve upon what you already have. But at least you're working with the knowledge that you do have at the current time and with your current information, do as much as you can today and let tomorrow take care of tomorrow. That's what I would say about that. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for hanging with us on this episode of the Money Advantage today. And in closing, I want to remind you, if you are looking for any information about life insurance, we would love to be a resource and help for you. You can find us at themoneyadvantage.com slash calendar. Well, themoneyadvantage.com is perfect. And you can go to the calendar directly with that link I just mentioned. That will take you to our calendar and you can go ahead and book a conversation to have an introductory call and just find out how we can help you meet your financial goals. Now, I will let you know as well in closing, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. 
Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on the moneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.